The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Background in um, the sciences of psychology, particularly, and as well as religious studies in Buddhism. She studied at um, the University of London in this uh, with this fascinating overlay of both science and religious studies, especially Buddhism. And she has three books out. Um, I think the title of your first book was, uh, it, um, well, actually, I've forgotten it, but it also has emptiness in the title. And, uh, <laughs> and the, her second book is Beyond Happiness. And her, her latest book, which is just released, is the philosophy of emptiness. So, um, so this is uh, uh, a great opportunity to hear how these, how this idea of emptiness um, plays in with science, especially the science of psychology and the practice and study of Buddhism from uh, an expert in the field. So I will be. Uh, having the mic with me if, if there are any questions during the day. And I ask you to wait for your question until I come around with the mic and give it to you, okay, because the talks are recorded. So welcome, Gay, and thank you for coming today. Is that good? Is that okay. Um, Thank you very much for inviting me. It's an enormous pleasure to be here. Um, just a few things. First of all, I am overwhelmed by how many people are intrepid enough to come and put themselves forth for a day on emptiness. Thank you. Um, I hope you will be rewarded. Um, I've kind of organized the day with various breaks, and um, we'll have a break, I think, mid-morning and mid-afternoon, and obviously a break for lunch. If anyone wants to leave at any other time, feel free. And feel free, if you can't hear me or you don't understand anything, um, to interrupt as and when you need to do so. I've kind of planned about three semi-guided meditations that I hope will take up the theme of what we've, I've been talking about and we've been discussing. But I thought it would be good to start with just a very short period of, of meditation, of sitting, just to bring ourselves all here so we can settle down. Um, I'm assuming that everyone here has their own practice. Nobody is a beginner, so I would ask you to do whatever it is you normally do and just bring yourself here um, for five or ten minutes and start perhaps with your breath bringing <clears throat> mind and body together and if, if thoughts intrude just, just try and see what it is that is preventing you being here and noticing it and letting go of it. And if you get to some 
vaguely still point, you might like to consider what emptiness means to you. Okay. We'll just sit for sort of five or ten minutes. I will um, attempt to uh, ring the bell, which I haven't tried, so it may be rather funny, but thank you. I thought I'd like to begin. Um, I think I think we can manage that with the amount of people here. By going quickly, I would ask you to be fairly brief, going round everybody, and if you would give your name, which I will almost definitely fail to remember, um, but if you would give your name and just say in, in a sentence what emptiness means to you. I mean, nothing, nothing very deep, nothing very just a response to emptiness. I don't know if we have the... Uh, would you mind starting your nearest to the uh, microphone? I'm sorry. <laughs> my name is Jayla. Oh, am I on? Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, I'm Jayla, and... Uh, Emptiness means that things are absent of inherent thingness. Thank you. Um, Carla, um, I think of it as infinite openness. Um, Carolyn, think of emptiness as um, interdependence. I'm Susan, and um, emptiness uh, to me is uh, uh, absence of of wanting. I'm Trudy, and for me, emptiness is the result of reaching equanimity. I'm Eileen, and it brings up love for me. I'm sorry, I didn't... Love. Oh, thank you. My name, my name is Tony, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure there's much to it. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Mary Ellen, and emptiness for me is a comfort with stillness. Kate, um, emptiness is a lacking of something. Kate, um, a lacking, lacking of something. I'm Phil. I'm ambivalent about emptiness. Um, it means to me a lack of, of fixed meaning, but also confusion and grief. I'm sorry? Also confusion and grief. Confusion and grief, thank you. I'm Bill. Uh, this is a good exercise. Um, so I think it means to me uh, having developing the kind of clarity of mind that allows me to uh, respond to situations free of conditioning, past conditioning. I'm Nancy. 
I find it something I can't think about, therefore confusing. I am Anya, and emptiness to me is potentiality. Hi, I'm Joe. Um, emptiness to me is quiet awareness. Uh, Ken, uh, emptiness means nothing lasts forever. Nisar, and emptiness to me means don't get so worked up or disturbed by the happenings around. I'm Kate. Emptiness is um, no attachment to self. I'm Claudine, and for me it's uh, the absence of I. Marie, um, openness to the moment and the absence of, um, of self, of aversions and desires. I'm Emily, and to me it means that which is unknown. I'm Carolina. And I don't have words for my experience. I'm Brigitte. And similarly, it's hard to put a word to emptiness, but uh, the first word that came was silence and spaciousness. I'm Julia, and um, everything changes. Hi, I'm Sydney. You've all taken my words. I, don't, I can't really add anything. It's, I'll say for me it's um, openness and spaciousness. Roseanne, and um, I would say emptiness is the n nothing is there in the there-ness, <laughs> sort of suchness. I am Mahin, emptiness is inner peace and acceptance. Hi, I'm Fumi, and uh, for me, emptiness is boundless or borderless. My name is William, and I uh, try to maintain a state of mind that enjoys the serenity of all nature, the oneness of things, a state of mind which looks for the truth. My name is uh, Jeff, and emptiness is a babbling brook. Hi, uh, my name is Irit. Um, I guess for me, emptiness is the opposite of fullness, meaning lack of meaning, lack of uh, essence, um, something like that. Wow, well, thank you all. Um, Oh, we, has anyone? I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Laurie, come on, please. So I think emptiness is the lack of anything inherently. I, I don't have words for it, but it's, it's kind of like we can know something, but it's 
It's our knowing of something, and we tend to label it. But that object doesn't really have, have that particular thing. It's our assessment or our interaction with it that gives it that particular sense of what we think it is. Right. Uh, there were moments then, quite a lot of them, when I think I could just go home. <laughs> but you actually don't need me. You know, you know, you know you've got it. Um, and there's nothing more to say. I have to say that was the most wonderful collage of responses and descriptions of emptiness. Thank you very much. It's fantastic. Um, I'm profoundly grateful to those people who actually talked of lack and of confusion (laughs) Um, because I think it is important to distinguish between what I would call an existential sense of emptiness and what emptiness means in English and a philosophy of emptiness. And I think that the lack is our normal existential response. Just to the word of emptiness, if you've never come across a Buddhist teaching on emptiness or a Taoist teachings or anything like that. Um, What I want to do today is I'm going to talk about emptiness in early Buddhism, the emptiness of self. Then I think we'll have a, um, a guided meditation um, about ourselves. Then I want to talk about um, the Mahayana and other, a more a different sense of emptiness, an expanded sense of emptiness. Um, Then I think we'll have lunch, and then we'll have another sitting. And then I want to talk about emptiness in the contemporary scene, because I think the philosophy of emptiness is hugely important today, um, for reasons I hope I will be able to explain to you, which is very much predicated on that distinction between emptiness as lack, which can lead to nihilism, a lack of hope when certainties are attacked, and a philosophy of emptiness which leads us back to suchness, to what is. Um, And I think our Western... I mean, I will go into this more later, but I think um, our Western understandings of emptiness and our, philosoph- <coughs> our philosophies <coughs> of presence um, don't give us that intertwined understanding of being coming out of not being and not being antagonistic, that the non-dual philosophies such as Buddhism and Taoism can can allow us to to understand. And I think this is tremendously helpful in our um, contemporary world, and I want to explore some of the areas where where we will see it. Um, 
But now I want your input. And does anyone want to say anything more? We have time to expand a little on all that you have said, your little snippets on emptiness. Does anyone want to expand on that? Um, particularly those perhaps who said lack or confusion. Thank you. Um, Don, yeah. So, um, um, I'm not. I'm not sure what what more to add. I feel like there is more that there's. Um, I'm, I guess I'm at a place in my own life where things haven't turned out the way I thought that they mm-hmm. would, and so um, so my plan uh, is gone. Yes. And um, I sometimes I wake up in the morning, and there's nothing to do. Yeah. And it doesn't feel very good. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, so when I say confusion and, and loss, um, that's, that's what I mean. I, um, Absolutely. And I can, I can sit and I can, I can have an experience of a bliss, but even that seems meaningless. And maybe that's ultimately the point. Um, maybe I just need to practice more and settle, but it's, um, there's a sadness there for me. What you say reminds me of something Stephen Batchelor may have written or may have just said to me. Um, A definition of emptiness as the loss of necessity and the embrace of contingency. And I think you express very well the loss of necessity and I think it does give us that sense of loss. And it's a hard step to get to the next part, which is the embrace of contingency. Um, And somewhere in my book, I've got a definition of contingency, but I forgot to bring the book in with me, so in the break I'll have to go and get it. And I might give it back to you, um, because I don't want to get it wrong. But it is that feeling that things could be, you know, can be any way. They don't have to be a certain way. And I think that is scary. Um, That things are impermanent. I mean, I do think this goes very, very to the very center of of the Buddha's teachings. Um, And it's very tied up with how we think we exist as selves, which I hope I will go into a little later. But I think there is no evading that loss of necessity, that sense of impermanence. It's very real. I think, you know, we can call it, if you like, the tragic sense of life. And I think there are, there are two, two sort of immediate responses to emptiness. 
And I think the one that is most common perhaps in, in, in now in our Western culture is um, t- distraction, to try and fill it. I always remember when I was, when I was studying at the University in London, um, I used to travel on the tube, the underground train, and I would come out of maybe lectures on Buddhism and I would be going home on the, on the, on the tube. And there was this enormous poster, which I think was, a, was, was an advertisement for um, uh, an Israeli resort. I think it was Eilat. And it was lovely sunny beach, you know, and this was the middle of the English winter. And it said, wouldn't you rather be somewhere else? <laughs> and it always seemed to me, well, yes, of course you'd rather be on the beach, but absolutely emblematic of what perhaps was wrong with our culture, that it was always asking us to be somewhere else, not, you know, back in that, I'm old enough to know that, you know, Ramdas one of be here now. And it's scary being here now. And so often it's the expectations the hopes, things that can be really good in themselves, but which get in the way, I think, of us being here now, because now isn't how we planned it. And that brings up fear. Um, You know, I I think the... I always think of it as the three o'clock in the morning sort of fears, you know, when everything that's kind of a little worry in the day becomes a monster at 3 a.m. And to embrace the monster is jolly difficult. Sorry, and now there was someone else who wanted to say something else. Um, the lady behind whose, of course, name I can't remember. I do apologize. Uh, yes, you're right. I had raised my hand, but that was kind of before I heard you say the people who said something about lack and confusion. I had not said that, but I have most of my life experienced emptiness as a very scary, scary place. And... Um, I won't bore you with details, but a lifetime of going through whatever came up, it brought me to a place where I now see it as something really magical, a place of unlimited possibilities, a a very exciting place where anything can happen. Thank you. I hope that does give hope, perhaps hope rather than expectation, to the rest of you that, or those that are feeling emptiness as a lack. That um, I think I think part of it is our is our English language actually. You know, emptiness definitely denotes lack. Um, I, somebody said openness. I forget who it was. I was really glad someone brought that in because. It's the word I think I like best. I I don't think it quite does. Um, Instead of emptiness, I think we're stuck with emptiness, you know, so we'll go with it. But openness definitely has a greater um, positive twist, I think. And I have to say that the Sanskrit word, shunyata, which is... um, 
the word that is usually translated emptiness, um, has in fact connotations of hollowness, like the hollowness of a seed, so it does, which then can turn into a sprout. So it does have a connotation of, of potential that I think emptiness lacks. So etymologically, there is something in that. Um, I do remember when I was studying, I was lucky enough to do Tibetan lessons, language lessons, with Stephen Batchelor. And it was, one of, it was sort of around the time he was working on his translations of Nagarjuna. And for a long time, Stephen was using transparency instead of emptiness, which was a good one. In the end, he decided not to go along with it. But um, I, I think it had, that has a, a, a nice twist on emptiness. Now there was someone else who had that. Hand up over there. Yep. Part of the question of stillness or emptiness brings up a question for me. On there seems to be a step from the stillness or quietness into some kind of choice, uh, moral choices about and competing values, and how does one? take that step and what what's what's the guide there's a lot of you know thinking competing values in terms of choices about spending time with friends helping somebody else working on the environment and where where is the how what guides that step in thinking sorry the question is where is the what helps guide oneself was at a point oh. of stillness and if you want to call it emptiness, and then then there's some movement in 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 the world in terms of making choices and action, and, and what's the step that guides that? How what's the thinking from non-thinking to thinking that will uh, guide one's thinking? Even the, I think the word emptiness we use it here in America. Maybe it means slightly something different. For, Somebody from a, a British background and very different cultural tradition, and there's a very subtle change in many decisions about how one is perceiving and thinking about the world. You know, I'm not sure that... It's a, it's a really good question, and I don't think I've ever thought about it like that, but I'm not sure that I see the kind of ethical, moral decisions you're talking about coming out of the idea of emptiness. Um, in the Mahayana teachings, as we'll get on to later, the wisdom of emptiness is balanced with compassion, which is also is sort of the active part of it. And I think that's where the ethical decisions come in, out of compassion. I also think that the other side of emptiness is interdependence. And I think the compassion, compassio, I feel for, I feel with, um, comes out of that understanding of interdependence. So I think it's kind of two steps away from actual emptiness itself. And the link is interdependence and compassion would be my answer. 
but someone else might have a different... You know, please feel free to, to come in at this stage if anyone's got any thoughts on this. That's not something I had thought of directly before, but it's, it's a very interesting question. Does anyone else? Carolyn. Well, with that invitation, I will say, um, say that's the word that arose for me, uh, was interdependence. And then um, after hearing you and others speak somewhat, you brought in the word non-duality. And that's another word that is a linking word that may, that perhaps can point in, in a sense to action and the, the, the connection between stillness and action uh, and choice. Right. So that they're not separate, really. Yes. I, I think we do have in the West, and this is something I shall say a bit probably about this afternoon, but um, in the West we do have a logic that is, if you like, the logic of the excluded middle. Something is either present or it is absent, and you cannot have anything in the middle. I think Buddhism, particularly with Nagarjuna, offers us, a, and I know there are arguments both for and against this scholastically, which I don't want to go into, but um, I think Buddhism allows us that non-dual logic, if that's not an oxymoron, but it's a logic of complementarity rather than a logic of contradiction. And I think it has an enormous amount to offer us at the moment, and indeed just in living life. It's not always either or. And I think we, we, we are educated, our minds are absolutely from the word go to think if you haven't got something, then you're lacking something. And I think the great value of a philosophy of emptiness is to challenge this. And that, to me, is part of its, its richness. So I wanted to tag on to that just a little bit because when you were saying about complementarity, it reminded me I went through uh, some compassion training recently and we um, talked about the idea of embracing both and as opposed to either or yeah. that often we want to just have one but not the other but, but sometimes we're actually challenged to hold both that, that we may have conflicting things happening at the same time and having the spaciousness to have both of them rather than, than excluding. Thank you. I think that's very important and helpful. Those are the gentleman in green. Sorry. Okay. I would uh, also like to comment on the word complementarity. And that reminded me of quantum physics and the terms like a particle and a wave is an example of complementarity. And to me, uh, the greatest argument in favor of uh, emptiness not being empty really comes from science and the discovery of Higgs boson mm -hmm. that actually 
brings in matter out of energy yeah. and fills the emptiness with potentiality. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm going to say something about that, I think, in this afternoon, and I think that's really important. I, I do think, you know, this ancient philosophy of emptiness is speaking to a lot that is incredibly current and contemporary. Um, well, I could riff on uh, parallels between modern physics and Buddhism, but because um, I love it, but uh, instead, um, someone once told me her snapshot definition of Buddhism. Um, it goes, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Um, and I liked it because it doesn't mean spiraling down into hopelessness, but rather um, it frees you from the angst of hoping and then when you're freed from that, you can respond in the most healthy way to situations or, or just feel free to notice and, and to uh, appreciate moment-by-moment moment existence. So I don't know if that yeah. relates to emptiness or not, but in my, in my mind it does. I do see that. I, um very interesting because one of the trust or faith is, is considered um, a positive quality in Buddhism. So it's not entirely without hope. But I think possibly what, what it comes down to with all these things is, is how we hold them, not what we're holding. But, you know, the, the Buddhist teachings about grasping and relate to everything, not just selves and desires and things like that, but even the good stuff, you know, it's, it's how we hold things, a kind of a light holding, not a grasping. It's when, that, when we grasp that the problems arise. So it is, there's something about an acknowledging and as, as you so rightly say, as you acknowledge, um, I think you can see positives and what does exist without grasping it and allowing what is there to be appreciated rather than going out and trying to impose yourself upon it. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really good point. Thank you. Okay, anybody else want to throw in anything about the um, existential feeling of emptiness before I get on to a rather more um, uh, theoretical, perhaps, discussion of emptiness in early Buddhism and the emptiness of self? Anyone want to throw anything in? Okay. Then um, you're going to get me droning on for a bit, and then we'll have a break. Because I want to sort of look at how Buddhist teachings on emptiness evolved to draw some distinctions about how they were in um, early Buddhism and then later on in the Mahayana. And as I say, and then we're going to do 
a couple of guided meditations. One will probably be after lunch. And then we'll, I want to go and talk about ideas of emptiness in the contemporary scene, which brings in the science and perhaps the arts and various things like that. Um, everybody with me? Okay? Happy? Good. <laughs> um, Funnily enough, the actual terms emptiness and empty are rarely found in early Buddhism. The emphasis there is on anatta, or not-self. And as I'm sure you know, the three marks of existence that are taught are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and emptiness of self. Um, early Buddhism gives us lots and lots of models, sort of numerical models that are presented um, in the sutras. I'm going to use the Sanskrit word because I'm more familiar with it than the suttas, which is probably what you use. But there are all these models, I'm sure you know them, the five ab- aggregates, form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations or dispositions and consciousness. Um, the various 9, 12, 6 links of dependent origination, etc., etc. They usually drive people slightly mad because they always seem to be 5 of this and 6 of that and 12 of the other, and you know, which I think is probably because they come out of an oral culture and it's easier to remember if you can tick them all off. Um, but interestingly, I think is to see the intention behind all the ones that relate to the self, which is they decompose the self. They deconstruct the self. They deconstruct this sort of solid self, which in some ways I think for, for, for ease I'm going to call the self-image. But we think of ourselves as solid and permanent, and this is me. Um, And all of these models help us to see the self as a process, a process of selfing, um, a process always in... They turn us towards, I think, an understanding of self as a verb, rather than as a noun. Um, Process, rather than product. You know, because of all the things that evoke desire, aversion, and ignorance, the three um, poisons, the self is the most central, the nearest to us, and the most pernicious. From the Buddhist perspective... Ignorance arises, I think, when this processual self is grasped and identified with as a sort of isolated and permanent entity. And then from identification with this solid sense of self, we create our world from that center, from the ignorant cognitive misperception of self, we add the emotional reinforcements of desire and hatred. What fortifies what we see and identify with as our self is desired. What threatens it is evaded. Above all, 
I think we, we, we sort of remain in a sort of rather thick ignorance of, of the fact that we're actually doing this. Um, and how we're doing it. I think it's pretty easy to see how this works. Now, does anybody, does that make sense to you? I mean, please, someone come in and we can talk about this. And does anybody want to? Yes. How from our feeling of ourself as a noun rather than a verb, as a thing that has some sort of shape and form, we create our world from that center. We draw to us everything that we think um, will fortify our sense of self. I mean, from the very frivolous, you know, I, I admit to always thinking that the next haircut I get will change my life. <laughs> um, you know, it's a bit too late for that. But these sort of, it's a very mini example. Um, and we push away anything that threatens our sense of self, the things we don't want to feel about ourselves. Um, and the ignorance is we, we pretty much ignore the fact that we're doing this, I think. And we, we try and ignore how we are doing this, how we are attracted to what solidifies the sense of the self we want to be, self-image, I would say, and how we push away threats to that image, how we hate it when a friend says something to us that really pierces how we want to be seen. Does this make sense? Anyone got any nice examples? <laughs> I've been unemployed for a year now, and um, my sense of self is totally, I mean, I see this every time I apply for a job and either hear nothing, which is usually the case, or have people who've had a 10-minute conversation with me on the phone doubt my intention to want to work there, wherever it is. Um, and so I can't, I don't really, I've sort of walked away from my whole profession. And I can't identify with any jobs that I apply for at all. You know, I can't, I mean, hoping is, I, I just throw them out there. <laughs> And if someone calls me back, they call me back because it's just too hard mm -hmm. to have any attachment to um, these positions that I try yeah. to get and who I think I am yeah. and how I know I can contribute and all that kind of stuff. And they don't think so. I don't, I don't make their model of who they want to work with, because I'm not like them. I'm not 20-something. No. I'm not male. Or whatever it is, whatever the sure. words are, you know. 
That must be so painful. And I, I really f- hear that. But you are not just your job. I think we live... I mean, that's a wonderful example of not just how we do it to ourselves, but how it is done to us by the culture we are in. I'm not my job. No. But at the same time, there's all this threat. Absolutely. You know, of not having income Completely. in one of these most expensive places, and how yeah. am I get? What am I going to get up and do? And um, and a lot of what I do to sort of counter this part is I do heart work outside yeah. of myself that has nothing to do with me, and that's helping someone else, and that's the best. Absolutely. Massage of my own heart, so to speak. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, we do live in a culture that, that reinforces, as I said, what we do to ourselves. We are seen as who we are by what we do in the world. Um, very, very much. And I think the last few years of economic downturn have been desperately hurtful in this way and exposed this and I mean I just admire you enormously for what you're doing because hard work is is where it is and alas it doesn't pay the bills so it's a double whammy so it should Um, but it is the way you are not just that. When I was working as a psychotherapist, I had this... Oh, and I do want to say, sorry, Carolyn, you, something you said, I am not a scientist. Um, I, I'm scientifically nearly illiterate, but interested. Um, I trained as a psychotherapist and, you know, in Buddhist studies and religious studies. Um, but it seemed to me that sometimes the greatest thing one could do in one's psychotherapy office and in one's practice was sometimes hold for the people that came to see you. You are not just that. The fact that they are much, each person who came in was so much more than their problem. And often the, the most pertinent thing about the person coming in was that they had become so overwhelmed by the problem that they couldn't see beyond it. And sometimes the thing you were doing most for them was holding, you are much greater than that. You are much more, when they couldn't see it. And the work of the therapy was often to hand that back to them when they could hear it. And then you would know that something had shifted and and the work had been done or that particular part of it. That's taken us a little um, off our our trajectory. I'm going back to early Buddhism, but thank you for that. Um, Another Buddhist model, I think, shows the process of solidifying the self acting in three main ways both emotionally and intellectually, through craving and desire expressed in the linguistic form, this is mine, through conceit, pride in ourself, which is demonstrated by this I am, um, 
sorry, this is me. And then cognitively, through holding on to false views of the self, which is this I am. The self that is to be negated in not-self and which is to be emptied out. And I think it's good to think of emptiness too as a verb rather than a noun, as a process of emptying out, certainly not as a thing. Um, The self that is to be negated and to be emptied out is in fact an illusion. It's not non-existent, but as we, and we need selves. We really get into trouble if we haven't got some sense of self, but it is not a solid, permanent form. It is the imposition, our ignorant view of self is the imposition of identity with attributes of independence and permanence on the foundation of the transactional or processual self that arises all the time from the interaction of causes and conditions, internal and external. As we have just seen, you know, a very good example of how this works in our experience, we Some of this comes internally from our own grasping and building up the identity we want to have. Some of it comes very, very early. It comes in our families. Um, I hope someone will come up with, with, with some, you know, of their own experiences of this one. But you see in a family... Children get their identities. There is often in the family, it just sort of evolves the clever one, the clumsy one, the beautiful one. And somehow you grow into that kind of identity. And often that's the sort of identity that brings people into psychotherapy because later on in life it becomes a kind of cage. Um, And that's where the expectation, I think, comes in. And and we, we learn patterns to help us deal with experience. And they're good patterns. And they defend us. But then, 20 years down the line, when our experience is different, we need to change the pattern and we find that difficult. And we get trapped. We get trapped by reaction rather than a kind of considered response. We get trapped um, by a lack of openness, by a lack of the emptiness, of, of understanding the emptiness of these forms we have built up. Does that make sense? Um, the, when you talked about the early understanding of emptiness as non-self and the uh, uh, verb versus noun, 
application to, mm -hmm. of self, self as a process as opposed to the product. And I was so impressed with your sharing your yeah. thoughts. And I thought, I myself come from Russia, <clears throat> and m one of my early impressions when I came to this country was how objectified people are. They are seen in terms of things that they have. Uh, we are not citizens, we are customers. Mm -hmm. We are not yeah. voters. We are measured by how much stuff yeah. we have. So my question to you is, and we are not the country who measures or who finds an index of happiness as something meaningful. So in your experience, you, you started to talk about the influence of the family upon the shaping of the self, but I am in, interested in the <clears throat> impact of national uh, culture on shaping the idea of the self in terms of the process versus oh. the product. Yeah. No, thank you. I'm really glad you brought that up because um, we will be doing kind of three semi-guided meditations. I will really leave you mostly to yourselves. But interestingly, I, I will tell you now since it fits in with what you asked. Um, I had thought of doing it in each one goes further out. The first is thinking of yourself in terms of the aggregates. The second is thinking of in terms of, if you like, your relationships and how yourself is built up from the relationships. And the third is the biggest and furthest out from the inner self and is thinking of how yourself is shaped by your environment, be it culture, nationality, um, the physical environment, the outside world, and how all of these create our sense of self. So we can explore those in, in our meditations, and um, I suppose, hopefully, hopefully, again, I can't get away from that, um, it will help us to see ourselves as more constructed and compounded and thus hold, be able to hold them a little bit more lightly and give us more freedom to maneuver within them. I think when you move from one culture to another, I'm sure everyone may have had this just by going on vacation. It allows you to see where you've come from with new, fresh eyes. The very distinctions you pick up from one, maybe where you come from and where you are at the present moment um, allows you to see perhaps that what you take for granted need not be so. Um, going back to that definition of emptiness, the, the loss of necessity or the freedom from necessity. 
that is one side of emptying out. Anyone else have any feelings about the wider cultural aspects of identity? I think identity is a really interesting word. Identity. Um, So you said you're from Russia. Um, My grandparents came from the Ukraine. So, no. But anyway, according to certain slant on current events, we should be enemies. Um, But, you know, we can also choose to just let go of that. Oh, okay, sorry. (laughs) That's good. Um, Right. Anyone else have anything for? I'm going into some suitors and yes, please. Um, just one thing before we go too far from Anata. Is it wrong? Am I on? Yes. Um, I don't remember who, where I read this. Where I read this. Um, but somewhere I read that ego, ego, someone translated ego as constant survival. And that seems to me related to, well, I like how it takes the heat off of ego as a thing that's, yes. as a thing within us that we, a theoretical thing that we need to respond to, but rather... It does some of that changing the form of the word a little bit, constant survival yes, as a process. No, that, that's helpful because we need it. You know, right. if you don't have the wherewithal to cope with the incredible amount of information and, that is being thrown at you by the world, you, you will drown. So constant survival, that's, yeah. I'm behind you, Gavin. Thank you. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, I think that, I mean, I have a lot of things to say, but obviously I want to focus on what's relevant about that. Um, I think that our culture teaches us to have goals purposes, and it doesn't teach us to actually choose our own goals or our purposes. It kind of tells us from very early age what should be, what is right, what will give us meaning. And I think that once we question that, once we feel that those goals or purposes may not always suit us, that's when we can feel some emptiness because okay something is gone but what will fill that up now for example two of the main goals that I grew up on thinking was having a family and having a good career to solidify my own existence have material or some kind of a security and once I started to question question, why are these or at least say, am I achieving those? 
that's where you feel, oh, maybe I'm not, maybe it's not enough, what's going to fill it up? And I think that's where it comes. And one more thing about the development of, um, of our identity and ego and, and ourself, I think that as when we see little children or babies, they don't even have a sense of self. They don't separate themselves until a later stage from others. They don't separate mom and dad. They see them as one entity usually that, um, that nurtures them. And only later they start separating people. They start separating themselves from others. So it's interesting to, to what you were saying about the whole sense of self as us solidifying it rather than seeing it as a process. Yes. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Because I don't think where we want to get to is, is the no self of the baby. It's, it's a spiral, not a circle. But it's all to do with, what, when, you, when you were talking, I was thinking it goes back to that non-grasping, I think. The emptiness is the freedom to question, to question those ideals and goals. Not to have any goals is probably quite difficult, but to have goals that are written in stone is equally harmful. It's how we can question them and keep questioning. I, I, I go back to, I, I don't know, somewhere in, in, in the sutras where you know, the Buddha said, keep testing, test my words, test. Be a lamp unto yourself at the end. But, and also, but test, question, hold lightly so nothing is absolutely permanent written in stone. I think it's if you hold something quite lightly, then you can have a response to it. And if you're grasping it, there's no space for response. You just go into reaction. And reaction is unconsidered. It's like, you know, like a, an anger. And you, you're, you're teaching, you know, as I guess as, as children grow up, we teach them emotional control. And it, it's kind of having that little bit of space. Um, and emptiness allows for that space. But um, I, whenever I'm sort of teaching or thinking of Buddhist things, it always gets very... It gets both simple and convoluted because everything is connected, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, I'm going to talk a little about some actual... Um, Emptiness in early Buddhism. Um, in, in fact, one of the first sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya, um, the Buddha goes through the ways that the ordinary man contemplates man, sorry, woman, because it was always the man there, um, contemplates the four elements, fire, water, earth, and air. And also he goes into the stages of meditation Contemplating each, the ignorant person, he says, imposes him or herself onto each, considering it mine. In contrast, awakened beings see each element directly, 
free from the need to impose themselves or their sense of possession on them. This, says the Buddha, is due to the destruction of desire, hatred, ignorance, the three poisons. In other words, I think, liberation. In another sutra, the Buddha says, the world is empty because it is empty of self and what belongs to self. Um, As I said, there aren't many actual direct references to um, emptiness in the early in early Buddhism, it is mostly anatta, not self. But there are two sutras that use the word emptiness in their title, the longer and the shorter discourses on emptiness. Um, the word is used here in a somewhat different sense, again from what we will see later in the Mahayana, and indeed in other places. Um, it's specifically here related to meditation. Emptiness is not related here so much to a philosophical idea as a practice, an undisturbed physical space in which attention can be nurtured. Within the formal stages of meditation, and these are the formal stages as the Yanis, the monk, and this is of course for monks, is said to regard each stage, and of course it being a sutra there is much repetition as we go stage by stage, but the monk is encouraged to regard each stage as void of what is not there, but with regard to what remains, he understands that which is present, as this is present. What is present always, and finally, are the six sense fields of the lived body. This is said to be genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness. I think such an admonition to see what is not there, but what remains, is one that should be really carefully considered when in any discussion of emptiness. What is not there, what can be loosened up, what can be let go of, and what remains. Um, I think this links back to what I was saying about the West not having a sort of a logic of non-exclusion. In the West, if something isn't there, it's absent. In emptiness, we look at what is not there, what may be emptied out, and we look at what remains. And that's something I want to bring back in every discussion throughout the day. What something is empty of, and what remains. And I think this is why I feel very much that 
a philosophy of emptiness needs to go hand in hand with a practice of attention. The attention shows us both what is not as solid as perhaps we normally think, and it also shows us what remains. I think this is important. Does, it, does, does that make sense to you? I'll say it again if you need me to. Or Yes, you want me to say it again? <laughs> um, I think it's very important to see and deeply understand, comprehend um, what is empty and what remains. What we can unpick and desolidify and what that leaves us with a philosophy of emptiness, and a practice of attention. Would it be fair to say that what remains is exactly not emptiness? Um, it, it, to some extent, yes, but it's also what emptiness in, is, encompasses. It is the suchness. I mean, I see emptiness as a coin which has two sides. It's not divided like my hands. It's, it's a coin. And one side, this, this we will get on to later because this is more brought out in the Mahayana. But one side of the coin is emptiness. The other indivisible half of the coin is interdependence. I'm going to be saying this later, so I'm not going to go into it very much. But that interdependence that is taught in early Buddhism as Pratitya Samatpada or Pratitya Samapada, sorry, I forget it in Pali and Sanskrit, but the dependent co-arising, dependent origination, which in its very first teaching is when this comes to be, that comes to be. When this ceases, that ceases. It is the fact that everything exists, comes into being, independence on causes of, and conditions. And that 9 or 12 version form of dependent origination is how the self, how the human being comes into being, you know, with the... It starts with ignorance, and then we get um, consciousness and nama rupa. I always get them wrong. And then we get grasping, and then we get... Well, we get um, desiring, grasping, becoming, being, decay, and death. It's the cycle, and it's often given as being seen over three lifetimes if you fully hold to a traditional belief in reincarnation. I think you can interpret it within almost any moment as a psychological coming about. What are the three? The three lifetimes, you know, um, well, 
the lives of the past and or or, or it it's it's how you come into being this life and your next life if you believe in the traditional um belief in reincarnation as as taught traditionally in buddhism which i will admit i am agnostic about um so i i may not be a proper buddhist at all but um you know i'm happy where i am um but i think you can sorry Um, I don't understand independent arisings or aggregates, but uh, something that you said made me think, uh, and it is what you said about that which is emptied out. That which, maybe in somebody's mind, was part of the emptiness, but then as a result of thinking about it, it was emptied out. And therefore, what was left, the form of what was there, but is emptied out, becomes meaningful, and therefore is part of the content of emptiness. Yeah. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yes. In a way, it's a reality that is emptied out of the impositions we place on it. The ideas of permanence, of self, of a world seen from our... The conditions that you were subject. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Of the I, me, and mine that we impose upon reality. Of the goals, of the hopes, of the, you know, things which are are not necessarily good or bad in themselves, but become, when grasped, when solidified, become unhelpful. I have a question or a comment. Yeah, sorry. So the thing that came to mind when you were um, saying, paying attention to what um, what is empty or, um, you know, what can be emptied or what's, what things are empty of, um, I was thinking of the Buddha's instructions to Bahia about just saying, That's right. you know, just seeing seeing is just seeing and hearing is just hearing and so what I hear you say is it's looking at what are we adding to that and seeing that this is all extra and if we take the extra away then we just come to bear seeing, hearing, tasting, touching. Yes, Yes, I think that's one of my most favorite quotes I think. From, from the sutras, I think it's amazing. Unlike so much in Buddhism, it's so immensely simple and so incredibly hard to practice. <laughs> you know, in the scene, there shall be just the scene. 
but we put this transparent, you know, it's like I see through these lenses. Um, but that's what we're doing intellectually all the time and, and emotionally, seeing, putting lenses. And because we see through them, we forget we are seeing through them. You know, it's like putting on your dark glasses or, and, and not realizing that the world isn't the color you see it, you know, because you think that's how it is. And then you say something. Someone says, no, no, that's not green, you know. Through my glasses it is. So, um, There is one other source of the consideration of emptiness in early Buddhism that I think is interesting. Um, there are, this is the four eight-verse poems from the Atakavaga of the Sutta Nipata, which I think is very early. Now, it's a text that I think Gil is translating at the moment. I don't know if he's waved it all in front of you. But I know he's, he's doing some wonderful work on this. Um, and it's also one that Stephen Batchelor um, calls the er text on emptiness. It's possibly the early one, earliest one. Um, and in a translation, or a bit of a translation that I think Stephen has let me read, um, in it we are told that Nowhere does an awakened mind, an awakened one, hold contrived views of is and is not. Such a person sees all views as empty of ultimacy. I think this brings together lots of really interesting things. Um, ultimacy, empty of, is and is not. That middle way, that non-dual way between is and is not. Um, in his poetic translation of this, um, Stephen describes the, uh, the uh, awakened one as a priest without borders which I like. It sounds like the Médecins Sans Frontières that we hear of in all the emergencies. But um, I think this is really interesting and possibly because it also ties into an argument I will give you this afternoon about the contemporary world, but this middle way between is and is not. And also the emptying out of ultimacy. Um, ultimacy, I think I would say, is the essentiality, the essence of which emptiness is empty of. If I go back to that coin which has emptiness on the one side, and interdependence on the other. Emptiness is empty of, or, or rather, everything. In early Buddhism, this was really just confined to selves. As we will see 
um, later after the break, well, after a sitting and after the break, this expanded with the Mahayana to all phenomena. But they selves are empty of independence, essentiality, and permanence because they are constructed, impermanent, always in process of becoming. Does that? Well, in my limited way, I'm understanding it as ultimacy would imply permanency. Yes, and essentiality, a little nut of that cannot be broken down any further. In the Mahayana, it was often called um, emptiness was, was because things were, it was the unfindability. If you like, in, the, in looking, we could see it in scientific terms. We thought the atom was an essence. The atom was the ultimate unbreakable down nucleus. And then we discovered there was a nucleus of this. Now we have all these particles which are so small and they can't be seen. And they, you can either know where they are or what they are, but you can't know both. Um, this is what is challenging our Western ideas of essence and essentiality and ultimacy. Which is why I think this philosophy of emptiness is so helpful to us in today's world. So yes, ultimacy is permanence and essentiality and a kind of ultimate independence that is not dependent on anything other than itself. And it depends upon the person itself. Can you... Well, I think the person itself depends on all sorts of other things. The person itself is the ultimacy, whether it's dependent or not dependent, it's its level of intelligence. It's a person's level of intelligence. No, I don't, I, I don't think so. I think the person, the person, there is... There the per, is a, excuse me, the person either knows or he doesn't know. If he doesn't know, then... Yes, no, no what? I, I'm not following you, I don't think. Well, your word escapes me at the present time, but I think you said... Uh, well, it escapes me. Ultimacy, essentiality, I don't... No, your word was... Uh, the whole topic of what you're talking about, ex- the person's existence or his, yes. l- his life or, his lo- or whatever, whatever his mind is made up of. Either he knows uh, life, earth, water, fire, and air, or he doesn't okay. know it. Yep, yep. You understand what I'm trying to say? I think I do. Yes. There is a you, le- your level of consciousness, if you don't have the level of consciousness, okay. yep. my used the wrong word, I said intelligence, but it should be consciousness. That's right. If that you have the level of consciousness, then... You understand that you are, each person is the essence of reality, himself. 
That's what we are. That's what we are in this room right now. We're real. We are real. We're communicating. Yep. So. No, I think I think there is there is a truth there. I I am wary of the word essence because I think we have this. Maybe it's just linguistic. Maybe it's emotional desire to solidify things. And essence is a supremely solidifying right. word. But I think I know. Can I interrupt? I just one. Just one more. Sure. I know. And we're not. We're not. Not all of us can be a Charles Darwin. And then what I have to say. But we are all persons. persons. Exactly. And we all have a level of consciousness. Yes, yes. Yes, absolutely. Does anyone else? I think this might be a good point to take a break.